Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. We are living in some dark days. Dark days. There's a lot of a lot of fear, a lot of anger, a lot of hopelessness, a lot of confusion out there in the world. It's a dark world spiritually. Um, the good news is, though, is that as Christians, we we have the privilege and the purpose of being lights in that darkness that being being a light being a witness this is a this is a a theme that runs throughout the old testament and the new testament and philippians says it very clearly that we are lights in the world lights in the world believers that bring light to the world a dark world how can we be a bright light and what effect does light have on darkness? That's sort of where we're going in Acts chapter 13 as we pick it up there in verse 13. But uh, we've got quite a bit of background work to do. Um, this is my favorite part. Some of you guys probably think it's boring, but this is good, good stuff. Remember, Luke is the inspired author of the book of Acts, and Acts is not just an isolated book by its, itself, or at least we shouldn't think of it like that. This is, uh, Luke and Acts are like two volumes of one story. Luke penned them both, they both go together, and it's one story of the gospel, uh, the light going to the Gentiles. Remember that even though Luke and Acts are separated in your Bible, they're both written by Luke. They're like two volumes of one story. The books are about the same length. This is kind of interesting. The books are about the same length with nearly the same amount of words. Uh, they both take up about 35 foot of a, of a scroll of papyrus, right? which is as long as you can get. And they, they both take, each take up about this, a one full scroll. And and this proportionality, this equal equal proportionality, seems uh, very purposeful in Luke. Both Luke and Acts begin in Jerusalem. Uh, Luke ends with the commission uh, to make disciples and, and the ascension, and Acts begins with the commission and the ascension. Acts uh, from the uh, sorry, both of these also cover a time span of about thirty years. Um, Luke, uh, from Jesus' birth to his ascension, about 33 years. Acts, from about the ascension to the early 60s A.D. Um, Luke ends with Jesus' trials and death, and Acts ends with Paul's trials and impending death. And each of these accounts, the trials of Jesus, the trials of Paul, they both take up about oh, a significant portion 
of each book, about 20-25% of each book. And so I think the idea here is that, uh, like we've talked about, Acts is the continuing works of Jesus. And so the proportionality between Paul and Jesus and the way that they just they fit together, um, it's like saying that Acts is the, is the continuing work of Jesus through the apostles and through his church. And I think you see that in the structure um, between the two. But when you consider Acts 13, guys, in light of the, the context, the, the context of this entire Luke-Acts narrative, chapter 13 is a major turning point. I mean, this is, this is huge, this chapter. Luke's writing, we know, to a man named Theophilus. We've talked about this a couple weeks ago in our Easter series a little bit. But uh, he's writing to a man named Theophilus, likely a, a Roman, a Gentile, centurion, maybe like a, an official. He's, he's someone higher up. Yeah, he's got some money in his pocket type of thing. He can actually hire someone like Luke to go and, go and write this and to, to travel and to, to search out the history of Christianity. And uh, that's basically what's going on. He's, he's, he's a, a Roman Gentile. And, and likely a recent convert to Christianity, or he's a, at least a, a seeker, right? He, he wants to, he's considering it. As a Gentile, he wants to know, Luke 1, 1, 4, 1 through 4 says, he wants to know the exact truth of the things that he's been taught. And so that's what Luke is doing. He's recording all this to show him exactly what has happened with Christianity. Remember, Christianity at this point is still a fairly new it's still very new. Uh, it's fresh. Uh, and God's program has, for centuries, been predominantly Jewish. And Theophilus, I think, wants uh, this history recorded for himself, maybe to reassure himself of, of his place as a Gentile in God's program. He's like, what, what happened here? How did we go from this old covenant with, with the Mosaic Law to now uh, the new covenant in Christ and all these Gentiles getting saved? Right? How, how did this all happen? And so that's what Luke's writing out for him. And uh, you kind of see that throughout Luke and Acts because Luke is highlighting God's salvation project or program coming to and working through unexpected Gentile people. You could say the, the, the key verse for, for Luke, the theme verse is, is Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. And that meant he was going to rescue uh, and save, uh, you know, just prostitutes, tax collectors, Simon of Cyrene, there's centurions getting saved, there's, 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 there's women. I mean, he's emphasizing throughout Luke and Acts uh, God's work among people that they normally wouldn't have expected, right? So all of these different people are getting, uh, getting saved and God's working through all of them. It's an amazing thing. Uh, and, and that's kind of Luke's authorial intent. He's the advancement of the gospel to all nations. That's what he's showing us. That's what he desires. The gospel to go to all nations. And in Luke chapter 2, in the Christmas story, Simeon, remember Simeon? He's this old man in the temple, and he said, and he's holding baby Jesus. Can you imagine? Holding baby Jesus. And he says, my soul can depart in peace now, because my eyes have, have seen your salvation. The salvation which you've prepared in the presence of of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. He's quoting Isaiah. This, is gonna, this, this little one is going to be a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. 
So, so whereas a lot of the religious leaders in, in, in Jesus' day just you know, despised the Gentiles, hated the Gentiles, um, wouldn't sit down at a table to eat with them, Simeon is a, is a real standout, right? He's actually looking forward to these Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled where the Messiah blesses not just Israel, but the world. He's looking forward to that. So we know everyone wasn't like the Pharisees, right? Some of those guys, some of the Pharisees were even, uh, you know, some of them, they weren't all bad. You know, they didn't all reject Christ. And, and Simeon shows himself to be one of them. Uh, Luke wrote that. When Luke, you have to think, when Luke wrote that in Luke chapter 2, he didn't know there would be a chapter 2 there, did he? <laughs> but he had in mind when he wrote that, the completion or the fulfillment of that prophecy in Acts chapter 13. Acts 13 is where the light to the Gentiles prophecy really begins to take shape. I mean, it did back in Acts chapter 10 when the Gentiles got saved, Cornelius. But here is where that prophecy, that idea of the light going to the Gentiles comes back up. This is kind of where it takes shape. Um, Again, we're entering right here. It's the second half of the book of Acts. Um, The outline for Acts, we've looked at this several times, Acts 1.8, where Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses uh, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the remote parts of the earth. Well, this is where we go from Samaria to now the remote parts of the earth in the outline of the book of Acts. We've, we've, the, I mean, the gospel has, it's flooded Jerusalem. It's flooded Judea and Samaria. The church now has a beachhead in Gentile territory up in Antioch, Syrian Antioch. This church is established. It has leadership. It's growing. And now the Holy Spirit's saying time to go plant some more churches. Time to move out to the uttermost, into the, the reaches of the Roman Empire. We, in chapters 1 through 7, we were with Peter as the main character. 8 through 12, you, you get a glimpse of Saul, and, and the church becomes Jew and Gentile, and, or, or Jew and Gentile mixed. And then now we're, we're entering chapter 13, where Saul becomes Paul, and the church becomes predominantly Gentile. We're about... 15 years into it at that point. And so this, this, this church movement is, is the, the freshness is wearing off. They understand what God is doing. Now we're going to go. We're going to take this light to the Gentiles. And uh, last time we were in the book of Acts, in the first few verses of Acts 13, uh, verses 1 through 12, remember we ran into... Uh, this this duo, um, Sergius Paulus and Bar Jesus. Sergius is this this Roman governor. Uh, this is this takes place on the, on the island of Cyprus. Paul, Barnabas, and Mark they sail to the island of Cyprus, where Barnabas is from, and they evangelize that island from east to west. And on the west end, they run into these two: Sergius, the Roman governor, and then Bar Jesus, who is this Jewish false prophet. And what happened? Who believed? Who would you expect to believe? Right, this, the Jew, right? Uh, you know, probably reading some Jewish tradition, probably knew something of Scripture, but he is actually blinded by Paul in darkness. He's hardened to the gospel. He opposes Paul and Barnabas. And uh, the Roman centurion, 
believe it or not, he, he believes. He believes. And so that right there, guys, uh, was kind of a critical moment because he is there. What, what went on there is going to become basically a taste of, that's basically a taste of what the rest of Paul's ministry is going to be like. He's going he's gonna to preach to the Jews first, wherever he goes, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And he's going to find a lot of rejection among the Jewish people and opposition. And then he's going to turn to the Gentiles where he finds more receptivity to the gospel. And he'll explain what happens there and what's happening there in God's program in Romans 9 through 11, which is only, what, 23 chapters from where we are right now. Maybe we'll go straight there. But uh, at the end of 13, chapter 13, 46 through 48, Paul, if you finish out the rest of this chapter, if you read it later, you'll see Paul speaking to the Jews who are opposing him in Galatian territory, and they're quoting Isaiah. He's quoting Isaiah, just like Simeon. He quotes Isaiah, and he says, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it and you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. And he says, Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And so this dynamic shift of, uh, of Paul becoming largely the apostle to the Gentiles was intentionally highlighted in the narrative, right? Um, Saul replaces Peter as the main character. Paul become, Saul becomes the leading apostle. Uh, it was for a while there we saw it was, it was Barnabas and Saul. You know, Saul kind of tagged along with Barnabas. Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul several times. And now, look at, look at the first verse of chapter, uh, or look at the first verse in our section today. Verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions. Paul and his companions. Something has taken place. Luke wants us to, to pick up on this. Okay? Uh, there's a reason that he did that switch there. It's not Barnabas and, and Saul anymore. It's now Paul and his companions. And from here on out, Saul, his, the Hebrew name, uh, Saul's actually going to go by his Roman name, Paul, which was a customary thing uh, back in the day for them to have two names in a bilingual territory like that, but uh, in culture. And Paul, ironically, comes to the forefront. Guess what Paul means? It means little. Little, humble, humble Paul. And there was a lot of irony in those names uh, that we looked at last time. I'd encourage you to go back and uh, catch that if you missed it. But, so chapter 13, anyway, this is a big deal. And as I was studying this chapter, I couldn't help but pick up on several principles uh, related to being lights in the darkness. That's the theme. Jesus' witnesses are like lights in a dark world. And Jesus continues to seek and he continues to save the lost through his witnessing church. And I want to approach the rest of chapter 13 a little slower than I have been, um, learning mostly from Paul's approach and Paul's theology on how to be winsome lights. Believe it or not, this is what we're going to read in the rest of chapter 13 uh, is like, it's like a, a little taste of all of Paul's theology. It's his first recorded sermon. 
and it's, and it's magnificent. We're going to learn about uh, how to be winsome lights, just like Paul. So look at uh, verse 13. Let's read verse 13 and 14. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John, that's John Mark, the writer of the Gospel of Mark, left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. So I love this about Luke. He, he sums things up so quickly. Uh, all of this travel, difficult travel, and it's just right there in one verse. So, uh, But uh, anyway, we see first the travels to Asia Minor. Uh, having evangelized the, the island of Cyprus, the home of Barnabas, the men sail north, northwest to the city of Perga in the territory of Pamphylia on the coast of Asia Minor, which would be uh, modern-day Turkey, south-central Turkey. And uh, it's at this point that John Mark decides he's going to return to Jerusalem. And uh, the exact reason why is not recorded, but it's not just a minor detail, I don't think, because... If you turn to Acts 15, 36 through 40, and we'll get there, Paul and Barnabas consider going on a second missionary journey. They say, well, let's, let's go back and let's revisit all of these churches that we planted or, uh, and encourage. Let's go encourage them again. Let's go uh, see how they're doing. Let's make another round. And Barnabas wants to take Mark along again. But a sharp disagreement ensues. It becomes a point of contention because Paul's like, Paul, it says, kept insisting they should not take him who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And this becomes such a point of contention that they part ways. And Barnabas actually goes to Cyprus with Mark and, and Paul and Silas go to Turkey. And it's not until several years later in 2 Timothy 4.11, his last letter, Paul's last letter, that Paul says, bring Mark with you for he's useful to me for service. Right? So, uh, several years later. But by then, you have to think, when Paul goes to write that, he says, bring Mark with you, he's useful to me. Um, I love that because it shows that they, act, they, they really reconciled there eventually. But Mark, in those years, that, that decade or two, however long it was, Mark had been, he'd returned to Jerusalem. Uh, apparently, he'd been discipled by Peter. Peter can call Mark his son in the faith. And uh, he writes the gospel of Mark. So this is not like the end of Mark at all. I, I, God just had different plans for him, right? Plans that I don't think Paul really understood, and maybe no one else did either. <laughs> uh, why Mark left, we don't really know, but Paul deemed it unjustified. He, he considered it desertion. And a lot of ink has been spilled over this issue as to what happened, and uh, uh, I want to spill some too, okay? Because I have found a lot of relatability to Mark. I myself, I've went to the mission field, and I've left the mission field early. And I came home, and guess what I, I, I start reading about? I start reading about Mark. Right? Uh, it was, uh, oh, who was that? Ray Stedman. One of Ray Stedman's devotionals introduced me to this, this whole concept here. So I've, I've uh, this, this whole situation here and this Mark and his journey have deeply ministered to me. I can't express that enough. So here's some of the reasons why 
Mark would have left. It could have been a combination of these things, right? One, when Mark joined this team, it was cousin Barnabas and Saul, remember? But now what is it? It's Paul and company, right? So the name of the business has changed. It's Paul and company now. Um, Secondly, maybe the original plan, I think the original plan and the original destination had changed. Remember how much Paul always wanted to go to Rome? Rome, Rome, Rome. I always want to go, you know, and, and he's, he just longs for that throughout this book. And I think they were originally ten, intending to go to Rome, maybe Greece, but Sergius gets saved. And guess where Sergius is from? Guess where we find inscriptions of his name? Pisidian Antioch. Right, so he probably was from Pisidian Antioch, and he asked Paul and Barnabas, and the Spirit confirmed, yes, go. He probably wanted his family and his hometown to be reached with the gospel. Um, thirdly, maybe there was religious shock. You have to think, right, right? They're out here. Gentiles are getting saved. They're not without baptism, without circumcision. I mean, his Jewish sensitivities, it just might have been a little bit too much for him. And because of that, because of I mean, circumcision, became, it becomes an issue in Acts chapter 15, actually by the end of this chapter, there's great opposition to these, these guys, and it just might have been too much. Uh, there's, fourthly, culture shock. I mean, he's not in Kansas anymore, right? He's not in Jerusalem anymore. Uh, culture shock is a real thing. It's a real thing. Uh, the romance of missions, once it wears off, homesickness sets in, weariness sets in. I mean, you're trying to I mean, the language isn't even the same, and it just wears you out mentally. You wouldn't believe how hard it is to translate something for people. I mean, translators get wore out super quick. It, it, it's hard, man. Culture shock might have been setting in, depression maybe. Um, fifth, maybe he was questioning whether God had called him there in the first place. Or maybe he just tagged along with Paul and Barnabas's call. You know, he, he's starting to question whether God had called him. Now, maybe God was actually calling him home, and no one else understood that. Maybe he'd gone with Paul and Barnabas to experience what he did, and then to go home. God was calling him home early. So what, right? Six, some suggest maybe he felt like he needed to return home to care for his widowed mother. Remember when Peter was miraculously delivered from execution, uh, from jail? He went to Mark's mother's house. So that uh, tells us something about Mark and his family. But seventh, this was, you have to think, I think we, we highly underestimate how difficult and dangerous this journey was. It looked really, you know, short and cute on that map, right? But this, these, these are some jagged, rugged, like cliff-filled, uh, just crazy Taurus mountains. I mean, there's there's like, Vertical. I mean, you go vertical up some of these cliffs, some of the Roman roads in here. Like you're you're walking. It's like walking up the Alps. It's like walking up my the steps in my own house, right? <laughs> if you've been to my house, you know I call them the Swiss Alps because they're so steep. But anyway, from Perga to Pisidian Antioch, where they're going, this is a hundred mile, thirty six hundred foot climb through the crags and the cliffs of the Taurus Mountains. So when Paul talks in 2 Corinthians 11 about experiencing danger from robbers, dangers in the wilderness, hunger, thirst, without food, in cold, and exposure, we should think about this journey through these Taurus Mountains in southern Turkey. 
Um, the word robbers or thieves in that 2 Corinthians 11 passage could and probably should be translated pirates because of all the piracy in that area on the seas and on the coast. I mean, this was dangerous. This was a dangerous place. These pirates pushed civilizations, cities, villages back into central Turkey, further back in there. That's how bad it was. People were trying to escape the pirates. Um, Alexander the Great, the Grecian world conqueror, he said the toughest part of his campaign was getting through the Taurus Mountains and fending off these barbaric pirates who were stealing his people and killing them. Right? <laughs> like guerrilla warfare type stuff. Uh, malaria was also another issue in this, in this lowland area right here on the coast. Paul says even in Galatians, uh, in the Galatian territory, which is right there, uh, that it was because of a bodily illness that he preached the gospel to them the first time. So maybe Paul got malaria and Mark's thinking, I'm just out of here, man. This is just too much. He's, they're out here on the coast in Perga. They're looking up at these mountains. People, he's, Paul's getting malaria maybe. And, and he's just, oh, man, this is more than I signed up for. I'm going home. I, th I think the Lord's even calling me home. Maybe. I don't know. So anyway, that gives you an idea of what is going on here. You get a taste of what it's like to be Paul. That's why I talk about all this. And, and I think from all these difficulties and the, just the tenacity of Paul, uh, we, we, should, we find a principle that life should be willing to endure hardship for the gospel, right? Lights should be willing to endure the heart, endure hardship for the gospel. I think a lot of times we think that if if God is in it, right? If God is in this thing, if He's really calling me to this, then it's going to be smooth sailing, and it's going to go just like I plan it. Well, Paul was shipwrecked, so that wasn't smooth sailing. He spent nights in the deep, probably hanging on to chunks of wood from the ship. It wasn't smooth sailing for Paul. Being a witnessing light isn't always easy. You will experience hardship. You will experience opposition. I like to, I like to think of Paul. Man, this guy was a professional camper. I mean, he, he lived in a tent. And he's walking around on these Roman roads in the middle of, of Turkey, scattered throughout Turkey, and he's, he's pitching a tent everywhere he goes. I mean, it, had to, it could have took him, two, took him two weeks just to get from Perga to Antioch there the city in Antioch. Right? He was willing to go through more than most men today are, are willing to. And uh, so it was very difficult. Whatever Mark's reason for leaving, though, we know that in time, God uses it. God uses it. Mark becomes the disciple of Peter, and, and Mark basically writes Peter's gospel. Maybe even, it might have been even the first gospel. A lot of people think it was. Mark's gospel, the first gospel. He writes the greatest work of his life after and despite failure in mission work. How about that? And we just went through the gospel of Mark, and that is an incredible book. Incredible. And so, here's a good hefty, I don't know, solid principle that, that we can live by. Lights move forward knowing failure is a back door to divine opportunities. Failure is like a back door to divine opportunity sometimes. That's what I love about Mark. That's what I love about Peter. Mark could relate to Peter, don't you think? 
Peter failed. We went through that. He denied Christ. He, he, he failed. And, and the Lord restored him and he said, feed my, feed my sheep, feed my people. If you love me, right, tend to my, tend to my lambs. Well, here's Mark, one of those lambs that Peter's tending. Sharing with Mark his own story of failure and restoration. Both had failures and both became incredibly useful as a result of it. Peter wasn't ready for leadership in the church until he had a failure. That's the way we tend to be unless we fail. We tend to be arrogant. We tend to think we're more successful than we are. Failure sometimes I like to think of as a, you know, a three-legged stool and God just, you know, sometimes we're, we, we, we're on a three-legged stool and God has to come and kick out one of those legs and make us fall down so that we look up and, and humble us for what's next. You know what I'm saying? Henry, Henry Ford said, uh, it's the, failure is the opportunity to begin again more intelligently. <laughs> I like that. Failure is a time to kind of evaluate where we're at, reevaluate, and a time to grow. In fact, I, I, like I said, I kind of feel bad for those who haven't experienced failure. Because if we don't experience fa- if failure, it might be an indication that, boy, we don't, maybe we don't risk enough. Maybe we don't set our goals high enough. Maybe we don't dream enough. Maybe we don't leave our comfort zones enough. Erwin um, Lutzer says, in one of his books, uh, Failure, The Back Door to Success, <laughs> uh, it talks about how a lot of folks who haven't failed tend to be very judgmental of those who do. Because they've just never, they've never been through it. Here, I have an extended quote from him here. The reason some people are more noticeably a success than others is that they haven't had the chance to fail. For example, I, I've never had to return home defeated from missionary work in a foreign country. But perhaps the reason is that I've never gone as a missionary to a foreign country. Can I honestly understand the loneliness, culture shock, and adjustment some missionaries have had to make? It is cowardly to judge others when they fail to reach goals that we've never achieved ourselves. He says, spectators find it easy and enjoyable to boo a football player for misjudging a play. But what if those spectators had to play? (laughs) How would they measure up against the skills of that despicable quarterback? There's one sure way of never missing a touchdown pass, just never play the game. I like that. I like that quote, especially in light of Mark in Acts 13. You see, lights, lights for Jesus can become even brighter and more attractive lights if they respond properly to their failures and and they move forward in God's grace. Guys, God's grace is adequate to make the best of any of our situations, whether it's a failure, whether whatever it is, even if it's a failure. God can use it. And this is not an excuse for sin, but it is true where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Amen? Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Grace outpaces sin. And so, so when you fail, there's two things you're tempted to do. When you fail, on one hand, you, you might tend to turn to like a how to be successful book, right? Or you might turn to positive thinking. I failed, 
I need some positive thinking. I need some self-confidence. I need to rebuild myself. Or on the other hand, and, and some people with a different temperament, different personality, they're going to they're gonna turn not to like self-confidence, they're going to turn to despair. They're going to turn to, oh no, how could God ever forgive me? How can I ever come back from this? How can there ever be a way forward? And so some people in their personality they tend to beat themselves up and they enter that slough of slew of despondency. Like you see in the Pilgrim's Progress. Rather than those two things, you need to turn to God's grace. Turn to God's grace and failure. Remember, you are accepted not on the basis of your performance or your particular situation. You are accepted on the basis of what Christ has done for you. Guys, we have a God who can redeem even our failures and use them powerfully for our transformation. And I see that at work in Mark's life. God can override and work out His will despite our bad decisions. And if you don't believe me, uh, just study the life of Samson. Okay. <laughs> of all people, we should move forward knowing God is a God of new beginnings. If you're here and you have failed miserably, somehow, in some way, I want you to hear me today tell you that God is a God of new beginnings. God is a God of second chances. Just about every Bible character in the Bible went through some sort of failure, and it helped them make them what they are, and it made them more useful. If, they, if you respond to it properly, it will. Abraham, Moses, David, Jonah, Peter, Mark. We could go on. But let's, let's go on to the second major point. Real quick, we'll look at uh, verses 14 through 16. The arrival at Pisidian. Antioch. They arrive at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and they sat down. After reading, uh, after the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And so it's here. Uh, that we see Paul's first recorded message, and we're going to study it in depth uh, in the next week or two, Lord willing. But let's take note that Pisidian Antioch, again, this is different from the mission base of Syrian Antioch in Syria. Uh, there was around a dozen Antiochs back then, and they got their names from Antiochus, right? Uh, rulers named Antiochus. Antioch was a, a Roman colony, and it had a Roman road, Roman roads running through it, which made it a great place to plant a church. Actually, Merrill Unger said they are planting a church in the nerve center and heart of, of Asia Minor, right there in the heart of Turkey on the Roman roads. Um, like in Cyprus, uh, we see there Paul's custom of entering the synagogues, and the synagogues are like uh, local churches for Jews and God-fearing Gentiles. Uh, and uh, boy, guys, if, if check your email. I sent you guys a link to a video. I know it's like two hours long, but you won't regret watching it. It'll really help you um, see this first mission, missionary journey firsthand. Okay, You can see like the oldest synagogue in the world. 
And you can see where the Jews would have washed and would have went into the synagogue and the God-fearers would have went up the steps and on top and they would have watched from above or something like that. It's really great. Um, but you see that there in the archaeology confirms what we're seeing here. Men of Israel and you who fear God, the God-fearing Gentiles who would have been there too. So I get excited about that stuff. Sorry. Um, Here's what he said. Here's what here's what would have happened in an order of service. It might have went like this. They would start out with the Shema, which is Deuteronomy six, uh, one through four. Hear, O Israel, uh, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. This was their basic Jewish confession of faith. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and pass it on to the next generation. Right? Uh, they would have said that. They would have had prayer. They would have had a reading from the Torah, that's the first five books of the Bible that Moses wrote. They would have had a reading from the prophets, and that would have been followed by a blessing and a homily or an exposition of Scripture. And that's here called a word of encouragement, a word of exhortation. And uh, it was common for that local synagogue ruler, whoever the, you know, the shepherd of that synagogue was, to ask, a competent visitor, visitor, maybe a visiting rabbi, if he had a word of encouragement for them, right? So, uh, always good, right? We want a, a word of encouragement from someone else who's ministering somewhere else. We want to know what God's doing somewhere else. Well, Paul here knew that they were going to ask him, probably. He had an opportunity to speak. And, and he that's why he goes to the synagogues. And you have to think, if he would have went to the Gentiles first in town, he probably would have been turned down by the synagogue later if he tried to go to the Gentiles and then to the synagogue. Because by then they would have known his message and they would have said, no way, no thanks. So he goes to the Jews first, and we also know that he loved his Jewish brethren and desperately wanted them to know Jesus. That's another reason for it. But uh, I find it very winsome that he doesn't just bust in and start preaching. It says he just he, he attends the service, he sits down, and he's waited until he's called to speak. I find that very respectful. I find that very winsome. They respectfully attend the service, they listen, and they wait. And I think uh, a principle here can be taken that if we, we want to be winsome witnesses, winsome lights in the darkness, we've got to be good and respectful listeners. We really do. Proverbs 11.30 says, he who is wise wins souls. Right? We, never, we never save anybody, but we can win people. And, and what you're going to learn throughout Acts is that Paul is a very strategic soul winner. He's strategic, he's flexible, he's winsome, he's courageous. He would take notice of where people were at first before he got up and started talking. He'd, he'd look around at their gods and look at what they believe in, and then he would start reasoning with them from the Scriptures. And one of the things we can do, I think, uh, to, to, better, to be better soul winners is to work on listening. Just to work on listening. Yeah, there, there's times we're, we're going to be straightforward. There's times, there's times to preach. You know, but, but asking questions and listening, especially in like a one-on-one -on -one conversation with someone, that's going to help you know how to share with them. Okay, when you listen to, to them, you listen to what they believe, maybe you, you listen to some of the trials they go through in life, they've gone through, you can bounce off of that 
and into the gospel and, 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 and go from there into God's word, right? And so um, you find some sort of common ground. And that's what Jesus seemed to do, didn't he? I mean, if he was at the well, when he was at the, with the woman at the well, he didn't just bust out the four spiritual laws or the bridge illustration and say, here it is, woman, right? He didn't do that. What did he do? He had a conversation with her. He took advantage of the situation. Here's a well. How about living water? Right? I know of an old guy who was at, uh, I think it was like a Route 66 gas station, and he says, hey, 66, did you know there's 66 books in the Bible? You know, just something, you know, you can bounce off whatever's going on. Be, be flexible. Be willing to bend your Romans Road approach a little bit, right? Talk to the person. Um, I think too often we go through these evangelistic uh, courses and we learn a great, a great format, right? A great system of like sharing the gospel from beginning to end. And then we just kind of, we're so unwilling to bend it, you know, we won't, we won't really listen to them and, and be willing to, 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 to minister the gospel to their specific situation and where they're at. So um, be flexible, bend the Romans road. The Romans road, Roads had a lot of bends in them, okay? Up and down and up and around. Uh, apparently, they built them a lot better than we build roads today. But uh, anyway, this is why it's so important to saturate our, our hearts with Scripture so that we can be flexible in our witnessing, so that we, you know, a Scripture can come to mind uh, that we need that, that fits that occasion, that fits that person and where they're at. And, and that's important because reasoning from Scripture is the most effective way to witness. We'll talk more about that next time. But can I, can I ask you guys, if you're, if you're going to be straightforward with someone, okay, in sharing the gospel, maybe it's with a friend, maybe it's with a coworker, uh, whatever, it's, it's one-on-one, and you want to share the gospel with this person, why not just ask them if you can? You ever done that? Like, have, have you, just, can you just ask them, have you ever heard the gospel? And would you, would you mind, do you mind if I share the gospel with you? Because uh, if they say, if they say no, I mean, you can, you still pray for them, right? And maybe you'll try anyway, right? <laughs> but if they say, yeah, well, then, then they feel like you're not shoving it down their throat. You know what I'm saying? Because they've said, yes, you can share the gospel with me. And so there, there you go. Just ask them. Maybe you'd say, hey, I was, I was really glad that someone shared with me about what the Bible says about how to get to heaven. Uh, someone shared that good news with me years ago. Do you mind if I share it with you? People appreciate that, and they usually respond positive, positively to that. Um, our culture, guys, it has changed. We can't just be all be a bunch of Billy Grahams. You get, we've got to learn to have conversations with people. We've got to learn to listen. We've got to learn to ask questions. We've got to get to know where they're at so we can reason with them from Scripture. Um, on one occasion in the past, um, I'll share this with you. I don't know why, but I had, I had someone ask me to get coffee with them. And uh, they were in my small group, and I said, oh, that, ah, that's awesome. I'd, I'd love to get to know this person more. I just met them. They're great. I'd love to, you know, 
maybe there'll be an accountability partner or something. I don't know. So anyway, we meet up at the coffee shop, and it's, it's not five minutes before I realize this person's got an agenda. They, they really do not care about me. They're, literally, they're trying to sell me something is what they're doing. And if they would have just said, hey, I sell such and such a product, and I'm wondering if you're interested. Could we meet up, have some coffee? I'll tell you more about it. And I'd also like to get to know you more. Well, that would have been great. But no, they, they, just, they didn't really care about me as a person. They just wanted me to sell me their product. So keep that in mind as you go to share the gospel. These, these people out there, they aren't numbers. They're, they're people for whom Christ died. They're, they're looking for people to really care about them and love them. I, I, had a, I had a group meeting at my house. There was a couple there in town for a while. They'd been witnessed to by some Mormons. And they said, these Mormons, we could, we could just tell they just... They didn't care about us. All they wanted to do was make a convert. They just wanted to convert us. And when we asked too many questions or when we you know, just weren't interested, they were out of our lives forever. You know, <laughs> they, they, just, they shook, they shook the, the dust off their feet at us. Truth, the gospel and truth is best spoken, best communicated in, in a loving relationship especially in our culture today. You've got to be willing to build relationships and listen to people where they're really at. Take the time. Paul, as we're going to see throughout the book of Acts, he is a very strategic and flexible, courageous witness. And I think if we're going to be lights in the darkness of our culture, we too need strategy, we need some flexibility, and we need courage. And we'll look more into witnessing.